This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. I'm here today with Justin Jock, who is a visualization librarian at the University of Michigan and author of the recent book, Revolutionary Mathematics, Artificial Intelligence, Statistics, and the Logic of Capitalism. And today we're going to talk about probability. Justin, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Justin Jock. And like you said, I'm the visualization librarian at the University of Michigan. And my research focuses on philosophy and media and technology. Okay, great. So what the heck is probability? It's a really good question. And one that is, I think, a lot more complicated than many people assume. I think it's something that we we sort of use and talk about in a lot of ways and assume that we know what it is. But when you really start digging beneath what exactly we mean by probability, the question becomes a lot more a lot more complicated and a lot more difficult. And it's really for one sort of simple reason, and that's that like outside of quantum mechanics, there really is no such thing as probability. It either rains tomorrow or it doesn't. You flip a coin, it lands on heads or it lands on tails. It doesn't 50% land on heads and 50% land on tails. And one of the things I've I've found as I've sort of been doing this research and and talking to people about it is if I'm giving like presentations for students, I'll sometimes ask people, you know, to just sort of define what they mean by probability. And it's really difficult to define probability without just using synonyms or the language of probability. And so there's been a historical shift in, in what we mean and understand by probability. The historian and philosopher Ian Hacking has written in some of his works going back to the really long history of probability that probable initially just meant that it was sort of like recommended on good authority. So some religious figure or high up person in the church said something was true. That meant that it was probable. But it's come on, it's come over, you know, over the course of the scientific revolution to take on this much more sort of scientific objective meaning, but the meaning of it has shifted a lot, even in the course of the 20th century. So a lot of the sort of beginning of the 20th century, 
early attempts to define probability are oftentimes what we call objective theories of probability. So they focus on probability as the long run frequency of something. So you, you know, you flip a coin a hundred times, if it lands heads 50%, then the probability of heads is, is 50%. But there are a lot of shortcomings with a definition like that, because you actually can't assign a probability to an individual event, like someone winning an election, or even the weather tomorrow, there are sort of weird kind of mental gymnastics that have to be done to allow that sort of objective frequentist definition of probability to apply to an individual event. And so the really interesting thing is that if you sort of read the literature from statistics over the course of the 20th century, there are all of these different and complicated definitions of probability, some more objective and some more subjective, so that probability is just sort of personal belief in what I think is likely to happen. But it really is this sort of metaphysical thing that humans have invented, precisely for the the reason that I said at the beginning, that events aren't probable. They either happen or they don't happen. Yeah, I was really struck by in the book this, it either rains or it doesn't, which was a very, that was like very helpful to me. (laughs) So to go to that point about, you know, it, it raining or not raining, I think one of the really interesting things is I sort of dug into this this topic and became more you know more confident like talking to people about it is that probability is this really sort of counterintuitive thing for you know it, it seems sort of novel to say it either rains or it doesn't rain but that's like a, when you think about it that's a very reasonable thing to say that it, it rains or or it doesn't rain and we've sort of come to accept probability as this sort of this clear thing that obviously exists in the world when you look under it it's that's not actually the case so there there's this at the beginning of the 20th century especially this guy Ronald Fisher develops what we know as frequentist statistics and his variations are what is oftentimes taught in intro to stats classes in high school and undergrad and there's this frequentist idea of probability that probability is the long run frequency of something. And it's really in the sort of beginning in the in the 50s with work of people like Leonard Savage, but then really developing in the in the 80s and 90s, there's this rise of what we call Bayesian statistics, which actually historically predates frequentist statistics and is, is named after an Anglican reverend, uh, Reverend Thomas Bayes. And for Bayesian statistics, probability is a subjective measure of belief. So it's based on what you think is likely to happen. And there's what's known as Bayes' theorem, which is a formula where you can take new evidence. So you learn something new about the world or the weather, or you see some new data on the internet, and you can update your beliefs about what you believe are likely to happen. And so in a lot of ways, Fisherian frequentist definition of probability ties in really well to sort of industrial production, where you have some, like, let's say some steel or something like that, and you want to know whether it meets certain tolerances and figure out how much steel you should test, whereas Bayesian statistics correspond much more closely with informational capitalism, where, you know, we're constantly making predictions about things, we're bringing in data, and so a lot of the algorithms that we deal with function in this sort of Bayesian way, more or less, even if they're not technically using some sort of Bayesian algorithm, they still see the probability as this kind of subjective measure based on knowledge and constantly updating. So thinking about usage, I will ask um, our second question, which is how do we use probability? 
Oh, that's a great question. And so there's there's been really a, a shift, I think, in the ways in which we use probability. So if we if we think at the beginning of the 20th century with frequentist statistics, especially developing in the interwar period and then in the period directly after World War II, probability in a lot of ways is really tied to hypothesis testing. So exactly what you learn in an, in an intro to statistics class where you know you really want to know if some some new drug some you know some experiment or something like that is different than something else and so you know Ronald Fisher the guy who invented a lot of this one of his first jobs was as an agricultural researcher you can sort of imagine how this would apply to something like testing a new cultivation method right you would you know you would plant one field using the old method another field using the new method and then the question is is the new method like actually does it make better better plants or something like this and likewise a lot of this is really driven a lot of sort of mid 20th century science you have one sort of current theory about the way in which the world works you know maybe it's something about like astrophysics or something like this and then you have another theory you gather data and you can you know use the data to determine which of those outcomes or which of those theories most likely explains the data that you've observed so it's really based on setting up tests setting up hypotheses and testing them or another good place you know that we still use this a lot and has been in the news recently with covid is in in medicine testing vaccines right so you take you take one group of, of people, you give them a placebo, you take another group of people and you give them the vaccine. And then you look and you see if there's a significant difference in the percentage of people who get COVID versus the people who don't get COVID. And I think it's, it's worth pointing out, and, and I spend a bit of time talking about this in, in the book, that Ronald Fisher was very vocally committed to eugenics and, and race science even after World War II when a lot of scientists withdrew their commitments to these forms of thinking, he still continued to advocate for, you know, scientific theories of, of racial difference. And I think, you know, I don't want to draw too strong of a, a causal connection, but I think you can see this sort of intellectual connection between this idea of probability and statistics being a tool for detecting group level difference and this commitment to thinking about racial difference that we see in, in Fisher's work. And his first academic job was as the chair of the eugenics department at the University College London. And so anyway, I think that's important context for thinking about this. But then you really see this sort of this shift begin in the, in the 80s, especially, and then into the 90s, where there's a move away from frequentism, in part because it starts running into to certain problems, especially because it can't really make probabilistic statements about individual events. So there, some of the sciences now are starting to question using this sort of this strict method of hypothesis testing, in part because it tends to have sort of a threshold. And it says, if, okay, if the probability is below this threshold, then these are good results. And if it's above this threshold, then they're not good results. And it's this very kind of binary way of thinking about scientific knowledge that works really well when you're looking for big things. But when you start looking at small differences, it doesn't work so well. Also, the subject of Bayesian statistics are very computationally intensive. So the, the math itself is quite simple, but if you have a large data set, it takes a lot of computational power. So there were technological limits to implementing it, but also a sort of a commitment to this frequentist understanding of probability. One of the, the big differences with the shift between frequentist statistics and Bayesian statistics 
is that you can sort of assign a probability to anything because it's about subjective belief. It's not about these long run frequencies. And so you can sort of constantly be updating how, you know, what you believe about something. And, and in this sort of weird and interesting way, even though it's a, it's a subjective theory of probability, it actually lends itself to automation in a way that, that the objective theory of probability for frequentism doesn't necessarily. And so, because instead of having to set up this sort of this rigorous hypothesis and experiment, because of the fact that you can just keep taking in new data and updating your belief, it works really well for things like recommender systems, right? Because, you know, you can think of like, you go to a website, each potential ad that I could show you is a hypothesis. And I can just take the one that you're most likely to click on. And then as I get new information about how you navigate the internet, I can change those probabilities in real time. And so it really fits really well with this, less this kind of like, oh, we're finding out the ultimate truth of things into a much more sort of fluid, constantly mobile, algorithmic world where we can constantly be making predictions about individuals instead of just group level difference, which runs directly into a lot of the problems with algorithms that, that many people are writing about these days in terms of racial and gendered biases and problems, you know, when algorithms are used from everything for advertisements to calculating credit scores to even sentencing some in some places for prisoners. So how will probability save the world? Right. I think it, it won't is <laughs> probably the, the easy <laughs> answer. But I think that there, there is sort of a like a negative or inverted way in which maybe we could say that it could save the world. And this is one of the things that, you know, that I try to get at in the book, because in a lot of ways, I think one of the, the problems with probability is that so once probability becomes subjective, then it becomes very difficult to sort of have a ground for how we understand what probability is, because I can say, okay, there's a 70% chance it's going to rain tomorrow and it doesn't rain. You can't say that what I said was false because I still said there was a 30% chance that it doesn't rain. And so there are, there are various sort of ways and theories for how you kind of ground the probability calculus in this, this subjective world. But one of the sort of major ways is called the Dutch book argument. And essentially, a Dutch book is a gambling situation where you make a series of bets and regardless of what the outcome is, you end up losing money. So if you, you know, you bet on three different horses, a certain amount, and no matter which horse wins, you lose money. And you can actually start from the desire to not have a Dutch book made against you. Like if you take your probabilities and convert them directly to betting contract, you can actually derive the entire probability calculus from trying to avoid having a Dutch book made against you. And so what's interesting to me in this argument is you see that essentially the grounds of this entire edifice of probability is in, in the market and the exchange of betting contracts, which I think is a really fascinating thing. And I think it, it connects to one of the problems that we run into with sort of statistics and probability and algorithm is that they're very good tools at navigating the reality that we live in. And, you know, oftentimes that's a reality that's constructed by, you know, by governmental and market forces. If you think about credit scores, right, they're like these totally made up things. And it's not so much that they reflect our ability to repay a loan or, you know, whether or not we like deserve a loan, but it's sort of this game that we get stuck in that, you know, you have to, you learn when you're 25, oh, maybe you should get a credit card so that then you can build a good credit score. So maybe you can buy a house down the road. 
And so I think all of these, these tools, these technologies, these methodologies are very good at navigating a certain constructed world and in a lot of ways constraining us inside that constructed world, right? Like they're very good at calculating if you accept the rules of the game, what the next step you should do is. And so in a lot of ways, I think the problems that we run into with algorithmic bias and, and all of these things are in a lot of ways just sort of laundering the dictates of capitalism along with the sort of racist and sexist and imperialist ground that it's founded upon. And so, so probability in that sense, I think really does not offer a way out. It really just offers a way to like compute the next move inside this sort of closed world. But at the same time, I think if, if you look at what's going on in probability and look at sort of the, the shifts from frequentist statistics to Bayesian statistics, I think there is something that's really positive in this realization that, that these systems are really just sort of wandering what capitalism desires or wants us to, to make the next move. Because you realize then that the, the sort of the only way out is actually changing the equation of what these systems are valuing and what it is that they're calculating and you know and exchanging upon and so i think if there is a way in which probability saves the world or at least points us in the direction of saving the world i think if, if you take very seriously the issues and the problems that it's struggling with i think it, it does sort of focus our minds on where the underlying problems are yeah because i was going to say like the end of chapter five it's not a fully negative end, right? You're kind of saying this is why the concept of revolutionary mathematics is important, right? Is because we can see where value is being put. Thank you so Great. much. Yeah, really nice to meet you. And yeah, and thanks again for the, for the invitation. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Irian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. The High Theory in STEM series is orchestrated, recorded, and edited by Julia Irian Martins, Nathan Kim, Sharnik Bosu, and Kim Adams. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. Mm-hmm.